Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. Do you eat to run or do you run to eat? If you're like me, it's a little bit of both, but it's clear that there is an inextricable link between food and running. The vast majority of the time, that's a healthy connection, but sometimes it's not. This is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, and we are devoting the entire show to a roundtable discussion on eating disorders and on disordered eating, which are two related but different things, and on how these things sometimes affect runners, how runners deal with those problems and talk about them, or more to the point, don't talk about them. And with me now is executive editor Tish Hamilton, who moderated that conversation. Hey, Tish. Hi, David. So beyond the obvious, why is it so hard to talk about things like eating disorders and disordered eating? Yeah, that's a really good question that I've been giving a lot of thought to because this was a really hard conversation for us to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are a couple of reasons. And one of them, first and foremost, Runner's World is a magazine whose mission is to give runners healthy eating advice. And um, implicit in that, I think, uh, you know, sort of under the radar a little bit is this assumption that you're going to be a lean runner and, mm-hmm. you know, a thin runner. And I think for the most part, that's a fine and good thing. But I think for some people, it can be taken to an extreme. Yeah. And as with other complicated issues that people deal with, there's shame attached to this sometimes. Right, right. It can be really hard to talk about it because um, it feels shameful. It feels like a problem. Right. So how did the idea for the roundtable actually come about? It came through a few sources. Um, There were a couple of people on staff who had had struggles in the past. Hannah McGoldrick, uh, as you know, had a very serious eating disorder when she was in high school and a ballerina. And she's actually written about it for runnersworld.com, a terrific piece. Right. Really, really good piece and brave. And moving. And people were really uh, happy that she had opened up and she got a lot of support for that. We had another staffer, Heather Mayer Irvin, who had also had struggles with eating disorders. And the two of them are very friendly and they started talking about it and they came to us and said, you know, let's do a roundtable about this. Let's talk about this um, on a podcast because we think we can help people if we can open up. Okay, so how did we get from there to the broader running community? Yeah, so we felt anecdotally, okay, we've got some evidence that this is a problem that affects runners, but let's see if we can get some more context for the broader running community. So we put together a survey and asked questions about eating patterns and habits, and we actually got a pretty good response. Uh, There were 2,700 respondents. And 1,900 of those were women and 700 are men. And right. that's important because it's not an issue that just affects women. Right. Okay. Well, it's an amazing conversation, and I think it's going to reach and help a lot of people. So let's get right to it. Thank you all for being here today. Um, first, I would like to introduce you all. So my colleague, Hannah McGoldrick, is the social media editor for Runner's World, and you've been with the magazine for four years. Yes, I have. And we also have Heather Mayer Irvin, our food and nutrition editor, and you've been with us for just over a year now, right? That's right. All right. 
And we are also joined by Rachel Presskreischer. Rachel has a master's degree in social work from Columbia University and is a program associate at the National Eating Disorders Association here in New York. She's also a runner who finished her first marathon, yay, the New York City Marathon this past November. It's great to be here with you, guys. And on the phone, calling in from Michigan, we have Rachel Shulist. Rachel's a two-time NCAA All-American in Michigan State. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Uh, so we've got two Rachels, so we'll, I'll have to do my best with that. Um, I'm Tish Hamilton. I'm the executive editor here at Runner's World. So as you all know, we recently conducted a survey of our readers, and what drove us to conduct this survey was curiosity about the relationship between eating and running, and sort of more specifically about disordered eating and eating disorders and running. And before we get into the survey results and you guys' stories, I'd like to ask our researcher, Rachel, can you define for us and explain the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders? So oftentimes when talking about disordered eating and eating disorders, um, we place them on a spectrum with disordered eating patterns seen as coming before something that we would consider a subclinical eating disorder um, and then full syndrome eating disorders at the far end of the spectrum with regard to severity of behaviors. Um, Disordered eating generally refers to the behaviors and attitudes around food that are based on distorted ideas about nutrition and weight. So it may be that there's information that's out there that somebody takes um, to an extreme or uses in a way that isn't exactly what was intended. Um, And additionally, some with disordered eating behaviors would give preference to food rules or rituals over really what their body is telling them. So it might be, you know, I have a rule that says I can't eat after 6 p.m. Even if their body says that they're hungry, they'll uh, go with the rule instead of the cue. Um, And when we talk about eating disorders, there are certainly very extreme disordered eating patterns, but you're also talking about distressing thoughts and feelings that interfere with functioning. Typically, that's in multiple areas of a person's life, like work or school and relationships with friends and family. Um, And you wouldn't necessarily have to have distressing thoughts about food. It could just be about um, lots of other things that may come up for someone. Okay, thank you. Um, So... We're going to get right into our our own personal stories here. So, Hannah, I know you were diagnosed with an eating disorder, and I know you've written about it for Runner's World, but it's different to write about it and to talk about it. So I'm wondering if you can tell us your story as much as you can. Yes, it's definitely different to talk about it than to write about it. Um, But I think it is important to share so that other girls and boys can, you know, learn from it. I was diagnosed with an eating disorder when I was in eighth grade, um, and I was dealt with it for about four years after that. Um, I was anorexic. I restricted eating, and it was a very hard thing to deal with. I um, Once I was diagnosed, which took a long time to get to that point, um, I was in and out of doctor's offices three, four times a week seeing a nutritionist, seeing my pediatrician and a therapist in very low points (laughs) during those years. And it's something that I still deal with. Um, I found that running helps me be more confident in my body and myself. Um, But it's definitely still have those same thoughts um, 
all the time. And just to clarify, when you were diagnosed, were you a runner then or were you um, uh, some other activity? I was not. Um, I was a ballerina. <laughs> um, I was, you know, pretty serious about ballet at that point, um, which I think kind of fed into um, my negative body image. Um, but I was not a runner. Um, I did other sports like tennis um, until um, my doctor actually told me I had to stop because it wasn't safe for me to be that active. And when were you able to start running? I actually, I didn't start running until um, my senior year of college. Okay. So um, you were well <laughs> recovered by then. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry, that's a hard story to share. Thank yeah. you for, for telling us. Okay, so my colleague, Heather, um, I know you sought medical help for your struggles. And you felt that the doctors had failed you. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So on the, the flip side of, of Hannah, I struggled with bulimia from the time I was about 15 until 20 or so. And I struggled kind of in silence, um, alone, purging, binging, purging, restricting eating habits um, until maybe my freshman year of college where I finally thought, OK, I need to tell someone. And I told a therapist at school who sort of started trying to find connections between family members. And it was just, to me, it was, that's not the point right now. The point is, I would like to be diagnosed. I would like to get help. And so I stopped seeing him after one visit. And then I told my general practitioner, you know, I, I, I throw up, I'm bulimic. And he actually said, oh, well, all the girls do that after lunch in the cafeteria. And I, I literally was without words. I it had taken years for me to come and, and tell someone and ask for help. And he says this, and he was, it was an older doctor, which isn't an excuse, but it wasn't, you know, I don't know, maybe back then that's what they'd, I don't know. And that sort of made me, well, I've tried talking to two people and it is going nowhere. So here, here we are, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. And this is the first time I'm actually coming out to more than the close circle because I think it's so important. And and were you um, a runner then? Yeah, I've been a runner uh, since I was maybe like 14 or so. And these behaviors started after I started running. Um, and then since then, you know, for better or for worse, they've helped and become you know, obsessive. Um, but I'm finally in a place now where I think I have a pretty healthy view of food and exercise. But like Hannah said, I struggle every single day. Okay, Rachel Shulist on the phone with us. Uh, you recently went very public about your story. Uh, you posted on Instagram two photos of yourself at NCAA meet. And one was in 2014 and the other was in 2016. And uh, can you tell us the story of those two photos and why you decided to go public with them and your story? Yeah, so um, I have the two pictures side by side. Um, both pictures are from the same race and the same place, um, but obviously two years apart. And I picked them because they're the best representation of the physical journey that went on in the past two years. But there's so much more um, behind that picture. So on the left, 2014, I was, I ended up fourth place at nationals. Our team won and it was a successful year, but I was underweight and not healthy mentally or physically. 
I was always anxious about when I would eat and what I would eat, and I wasn't confident in how I looked. And I isolated myself from my teammates because I just couldn't get over my own thoughts. And the un- the malnutrition led to a stress fracture, which caused me to miss most of 2015 season. So in the picture on the right in 2016, it was my first year back at that meet after I'd been fourth years before. And I was definitely healthier, but my confidence was gone because obviously I looked physically different. I was, I mean, there's a 20 pound difference between the two pictures. Um, and I spent the majority of the season comparing myself to the body of the runner that was that race in 2014. And I was like, didn't think I could be successful anymore without looking like that girl, but I, I couldn't, that was not a healthy place for me to be or sustainable. Um, so th- between those two years was a very long struggle of self-doubt and um, confusion about my identity as a runner and what I could be. And um, eventually at Nationals, I told myself I'm more than just what I look like. I'm still that runner, and I can be that runner. And I just believed it, and I just raced. And it went well, and I finally realized I don't need to be what I was in 2014 to be successful. And that was so freeing because we see so many images of really successful women, but they're very small and it's so hard to not compare. And I went public because it was such a struggle and I would hate for someone to have to go through that. Um, because, you know, not eating healthily, like there's long-term impacts that it can have on a body. And I don't want any young woman or guy to have to go through that and I think it's something that needs to be addressed I went public because I think it's really important to draw attention to this and how it is prevalent in our sport and really I think we need to focus more on the image of fast is strong fast is sustainable not fast is skinny because that's not long term and it's so damaging and it really it's it's a hard to trap to get out of once you're in it Thank you, Rachel, for for sharing that uh, both on Instagram and for telling us. So I want to talk to our researcher, Rachel, uh, about, you know, just because you don't have a diagnosis doesn't mean that you're not suffering. Um, So first of all, just I want to really give you guys so much credit for sharing your stories, um, especially if it's not something that you speak about normally. And um, it's really, I think empowering for other people to hear that you can share and you can still have a life um, outside of what may be a disorder. But for people who don't have a a specific diagnosis, there is absolutely no difference in the amount that you can be suffering. Um, And the first thing I would say about this is that to have a diagnosis really requires that you seek help from someone who can diagnose you. And the first reason that people may not have that is they may not see a clinician because they don't see their behaviors as problematic, or they may feel that there's just so much stigma about speaking up, or they may feel they don't fit into the very narrow sort of myths we have about who gets an eating disorder and who doesn't. Um, So like, especially for men, there's a, a tremendous number of obstacles for them to overcome in terms of myths and stigma. The second issue with that is that there are many clinicians, um, just to speak to Heather's point, that they don't know what 
they're talking about a lot of the time when they're when they're talking about eating disorders. And um, there are plenty of clinicians out there who are very educated, um, but there's a very large number, especially who may not have seen a lot of cases or may have seen them and not realized it. And they can fall subject to the same myths that the general public does about really what it means to be sick or what is sort of normalized behavior. And I think that point speaks strongly to the fact that you actually asked for help out there and you you didn't get it. Um, and just being able to ask for help is tremendously hard. Um, and the, the second thing I'd say is there's just so much anguish you can be having, even if you're not diagnosed, um, whether that's from feelings associated with body dissatisfaction, um, judgments about yourself as a person or a runner that may tie into your body. Um, so it, you don't have to be diagnosed to be experiencing significant strife. All right, so we need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss some of the results of our survey and some uh, more of the stories. Okay, so before the break, our panelists shared their personal stories with us. And we'll come back to those as we continue this discussion. But I want to start this part of the conversation with talking some of, about some of the stats from the survey we recently conducted about runners' eating habits. And we started with a basic question, which is, um, what are the reasons that you run? And survey respondents could check as many of those answers as they wanted to. So the number one reason among men and women was to stay physically healthy. And that was followed by to stay mentally healthy and then for fun and enjoyment. The fourth reason was to manage or lose weight. And that was cited by 71% of our female respondents and 65% of men. And so I, I do want to pause here and say quickly that, you know, running to manage and lose weight is not inherently or necessarily a bad thing or an un unhealthy impulse. And in fact, running is a terrific way to get healthy and stay fit. And that's something that our magazine promotes. So that said, for some people, their relationship with running and eating gets less than healthy, um, as we'll see uh, in some of the answers to our survey. So, Rachel, our researcher, I would like for you, if you could, please, to describe some of the ways the relationship between running and nutrition can get complicated. Um, so the first thing I want to note is something that we sort of naturally happened upon is that there are both runners who develop eating disorders after being runners, and there are people who um, develop an eating disorder earlier and may take up running as part of the disorder. And then there are people who may take up running long after they've recovered. Um, and for the people who are really in running as a sport um, or kind of join that as a community before the development of an eating disorder, there's a lot of messages about optimizing your diet and the weight that you should be at for your peak performance. Um, and there's kind of a culture in running, and I would say probably in athletics in general, about pushing yourself as hard as you can, you know, push through the pain, give 100% effort, which those things are not necessarily a bad message for someone who can kind of moderate that. But if you're somebody who's taking that literally or very far to the extreme, you're you're basically being told to override your body's signals um, in in favor of your training or performance. And there are many factors that affect people's relationships to running and food intake. Um, and most people can safely evaluate all the information that's out there. Just as we may hear about a diet that's good one day and the next week it's a different one, um, there are plenty of training plans and, and information. And most people sort through that and figure out what works for them. 
But there are some people who may be more likely to be overwhelmed by the amount of information and just sort of adhere rigidly to whatever plan they're given. For people who have eating disorders that take up running, there are also extreme health risks that may come with the behaviors that they come into running with. Um, so that may be that the intensive exercise can exacerbate symptoms that would come from their either restrictive habits or um, purging habits. So um, the final thing I want to say is something that I think uh, Rachel, our NCAA runner, kind of hinted at is that there's also a condition called the female athlete triad, um, which may be familiar to many runners, um, but basically that you are at a higher risk if you have menstrual irregularities, insufficient nutritional intake, and at a low weight. So there's a risk there for adverse health effects like low bone mineral density, stress fractures, osteoporosis that um, can cause long-term problems. Right, serious health risks. So here's an example from our survey. We asked respondents, have you ever run on a rest day or run hard on an easy day in order to burn more calories? And 56% of women said yes, and 47% of men said yes. And we also asked, have you ever increased your exercise beyond your normal routine specifically to burn off calories you've consumed? And to me, this is just amazing. 71% of women had done so, and 57% of men had. So uh, Rachel Shulist, I want to ask you, was this something that you did? Did you ever run harder on easy day or run longer on a rest day with the express purpose of burning more calories? Um, absolutely. I, I didn't enjoy any of the process of training. It was just, okay, I'm doing this run to burn calories and to be fit, and I'm going to do it fast. I'm going to do it hard so I can get the most out of it. Nothing was intuitive about it, and that also you know, led me to not be as close to my teammates on runs because if we weren't going fast enough or what I thought was fast enough, I would get just anxious right away. Like, I need to go faster. I need to go, you know, longer. And then on rest days, I was like, oh, man, like, if I do this run, I don't feel bad about eating this or this later. So I absolutely did do both those things. And it was always running for to burn calories. It wasn't running for, like, training as much, you know. Right. It wasn't performance-related. Right. Um, Heather, have you ever taken your running to extremes specifically to burn calories? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I ran in high school, uh, cross country and track. And, you know, when my disorder was kind of at its toughest, um, I would get up at like five in the morning and I'd go for a run or do a Richard Simmons exercise tape in the basement. <laughs> and um, I'd go to school I would go to practice, whatever that, you know, track workout or long run, and then I would go to the gym after. Um, and that was all in an effort to burn more calories. And something else that I had done kind of regularly is I'd look at, you know, my track schedule or my cross-country schedule, and I would choose a day, okay, this day we're running easy, and I just wouldn't eat that day. And so it was, oh, it's only three or five miles, it'll be fine. And so I wouldn't eat. And then I'd go to bed at like seven. So for me, it was, in addition to ramping up activity, it was what days can I limit my eating? And then, you know, days that I wasn't limiting my eating, they were just purge days. And it was just this pattern. I mean, I got it down. Um, but it just became move as much as you can, eat as little as possible. And in the days that that's not it, just get rid of it. 
Okay, so um, researcher Rachel, um, I want to ask you, what, what drives this behavior? Uh, we know that so many people use running for positive ends, but for some people it just goes beyond a healthy, fun pursuit. And why? Um, so I will add just the first thing is that there are um, genetic predispositions that we know about um, that may make some people or do make some people more susceptible to developing an eating disorder than somebody else. So you may have two people with identical training patterns and one you know, more rigidly adheres or ends up um, with sort of a significant eating disorder and another person doesn't. So we do know that. But I think also the nature of the running and sports culture, um, combining that with some of the qualities of running, like cultural praise for intense training, um, knowing that a lighter weight can improve your time, present the ideal circumstances for an eating disorder to thrive. And for people who are at risk or may already have an eating disorder, it's the same things that might attract them to running. There's also things like the fact that I think Rachel uh, mentioned that, you know, it's an ice, you can be isolated um, and running can encourage that. It's not even if you have a team, you can still kind of have your own experience of that. Um, and just outside the realm of eating disorders specifically, running or exercise in general can be problematic for people who even normally don't have a problematic relationship to it especially if you're thinking about someone who incorporates exercise as a healthy mechanism in their life and then may have a stressful event or something that they end up using their exercise or running as a coping mechanism um, without adequate support, they may also end up um, in sort of a compulsive or driven way of exercising instead of that kind of nice stress reliever. Okay, the following two stats are also related. We asked, have you ever skipped or canceled social situations to avoid eating? Okay, in a straight comparison between men and women of all ages, 32% of women and 16% of men said yes, they had skipped or canceled social situations to avoid eating. But when you break this down to women under the age of 30, 41% had said they'd skipped or canceled social situations. And another question we asked was, have you ever felt the need to keep your eating habits secret from friends, families, or coworkers? And 53% of women said yes, and 31% of men said yes. So Hannah, obviously you got to a point where it was a visible thing and it was not possible to be secretive, but were, were you secretive when this first started happening to you? I was. Um, it definitely took a real toll on my social life um, at a very hard time, I think, in an adolescent's life, eighth grade. Going into high school, um, I was switching schools, too, so I was going to a new school. And part of my treatment, um, I had to start having lunch with the school nurse. I wasn't allowed to go to lunch, which at the time, I, I almost felt like it should be secret, like people shouldn't know about this, which was really hard because... I wanted to make friends and I wanted to sit at the popular table and all that. But if I did that, I wouldn't eat and I wouldn't have eaten the whole day. And that wasn't going to help my, you know, recovery process. So it was hard. Um, and also holidays were always really difficult. I hated Christmas because it's like you sit down with the whole family and have lots of food. Um, so that was always very anxiety-inducing. And, yeah, it was hard to be social about food because I only associated that with negative thoughts. 
So in our runner, Rachel Shoelist, um, you mentioned this actually uh, feeling a sense of isolation, even though you're on a team um, and you're in college. Now, I want to know, does this make skipping events and being secretive about your eating habits harder or, or easier? Or how do you deal with that? So for two years, my first year, I was in the dorms, and that kind of made it easier to hide it because I would be like the last one to leave practice. So then by the time I went to dinner, everyone was already gone. So yeah, you can kind of hide it, you know, and I would just see how much I could leave on my plate. And every day I was like, do I really need this? Do I really need this? And it'd be like constantly like cutting down how much I would eat. But at the same time, every time I would do that, you kind of feel like, okay, like, yes, I did it. And really bad pattern. Um, But also when we would travel, it gets a lot more difficult because then, you know, you're eating as a team and I just remember it was always an internal battle being like the night before, you know, like, do I order pasta? Do I not? I'm like, I want it. And I feel like I need it. But then if I have it, then I'm going to feel guilty. And so it was just like a tormenting thing before I ordered because I just, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, our coaches are like, you know, just, you know, you need to feel, you need to feel yourself. So I guess in one sense, it's easier to hide it because you're more on your own. But on the other sense, like in social situations, like with a team, like dinners or, um, dessert nights or something like it that would just cause me so much anxiety because I just look at my teammates as like how can they eat that and not worry and if I were to do that it would just send me on a spiral you know like so much anxiety so it's it's hard it's I think no matter if you're alone or I mean on a team or not like you there's still people you know we're social beings so you're going to be around other people with food at some point and that's going to bring out the, the the patterns and people are going to notice too you know so yeah. Okay, so um, our researcher, Rachel, skipping social events and, and not being truthful with friends and family, to me, those seem like giant red warning flags. Um, it's, can you tell us what are some other signs that, that behaviors are starting to interfere with our lives? Um, so I think one of the um, most classic ones to point to is really rigid behavior or thinking. Um, So for example, most people, life is unpredictable. We have routines, of course, but there's times that we just aren't able to stick to them. So for example, most people eat similar things for breakfast most often. But if you don't have that thing, um, you just choose something else. But for someone who has an eating disorder um, or is struggling with thoughts about it, they may not be able to choose an alternative or may find the prospect of, I don't have the thing I need to be this tremendous thing they need to deal with, which would take somebody else maybe two seconds to pick something else. Another example might be um, if you're grocery shopping and you normally get brand X and they don't have it, so you just would get brand Y, but for someone with an eating disorder, they may, or disordered eating, may choose to go to any store to find exactly the brand that they need. Um, and, and the same thing with exercise. Um, you know, most people have a routine generally or a training plan, but if you're sick, you're injured, you know, you have a commitment that's really important that interferes, you alter that routine or you skip it. Um, but for somebody who's really stuck in this really rigid thinking um, skipping it seems like it's not an option or they they have to do it, um, which if you're exercising when you're really ill um, or you're significantly injured, um, that's definitely a big red flag. 
Okay, one last interesting point I'd like to call out from our survey, and this is we asked people to agree or disagree with various statements. And one of those statements was, I am extremely afraid of gaining weight or becoming fat. And among women runners, 72% said they agreed strongly or somewhat with that statement. And here's where it gets interesting. We also asked this, I am satisfied with my current weight. And 60% of women said they agreed with that statement. So we have 72% of women saying they're extremely afraid of gaining weight or becoming fat, and yet 60% are satisfied with their current weight. So researcher Rachel, what does this say to you, and how can there be this contradiction? So uh, uh, unfortunately, I don't have any research exactly to pull from in this case. So it's really just speculation or kind of my opinion. But um, I'm not sure that those statistics are exactly so contradictory. Uh, We get a lot of cultural messages about an obesity crisis, um, as well as really pervasive fat phobia and weight stigma. So it kind of seems like regardless of gender identity, people of any weight or shape could be absolutely terrified of weight gain. Um, And and interestingly, um, there's a similar trend that I noticed looking at the American College Health Survey. So they survey college students across the country, and they found that 39% of their female respondents described themselves as either slightly overweight or very overweight, but 60% were trying to lose weight. So there's a big discrepancy in the number of people that even this is just descriptive. This isn't even objective. Um, So I think that also highlights there's this really complicated relationship between bodies and weight and and our own perceptions of health. Um, And there are so many messages we get about what is an ideal body. Um, We place a lot of really undue value judgments on people who are in higher weight bodies. And we get bombarded with messages all day long, products, services, exercises we should be doing to change the way we look. Um, and sometimes that's couched in the language of health, but there, there's a difference between sort of what we're talking about for your health versus what's really kind of aesthetic. Uh, and the amount of money that people are making from this is really astronomical. So basically somebody benefits from telling us that we should be terrified of gaining weight or being fat, um, even when that's not representative of how we actually may feel in our own bodies outside of those messages. Right. Okay. Thank you. So we need to take another break. And when we come back, we will talk strategies for being a healthy runner. And we're back. So Hannah, you're a recovering anorexic. And at the same time, you're a runner. Uh, How do you manage that? It's definitely a difficult balance. Like I mentioned earlier, I still have those negative thoughts. Um, towards eating and calories and my weight. Um, and I, I don't know, as someone who has suffered from such a extreme eating disorder, that those will ever completely go away. But I think that running has given me like the confidence in myself that I can overcome other things. And if I can overcome, you know, running a marathon or setting a new PR, then I can deal with those negative thoughts towards food. Um, I also think that running has helped me look at food in a different way, um, to look at food as fuel and not, you know, something that I have to eat and to get calories in just in general. It's a different kind of relationship with food. Um, But I do know that when I first started running, I think 
my parents were a little nervous about me possibly replacing one addiction with another. So um, it was it took the, a little convincing to <laughs> let them, get them to believe that running was a good thing for me and for my recovery, and that you could run and be healthy. Yes. Yeah. And Heather, I, I see you nodding when Hannah says uh, uh, thinking about food as fuel and you, of course, the nutrition editor of Runner's World. So um, is it hard to, to manage issues with food for you? So aside from my job, I, I always do struggle. And like Hannah said, I think I always will. Um, but part of the reason why I got into nutrition and I studied it in college was for me, a way to cope and to kind of self-treat because, like I said, I wasn't getting the help I, I had wanted. And so for me, I thought, well, I'm going to take a scientific approach to this and I'm going to study nutrition and I'm going to understand how it works. And, you know, one thing I learned and that we've talked about is you know, 3,500 calories, give or take a few, um, you know, equals one pound of weight gain or one pound of weight loss. And for me, it sort of a light went on and I thought, well, I didn't eat that much. I definitely didn't eat that much. And so the science isn't there. I'm not going to gain a pound. I'm not going to gain five pounds. And, you know, it's disordered that I still have to kind of think that. But for me, going that scientific route was a way to help me cope and help me say, yes, I can have this dessert and I'm going to be fine. And, um, you know, I've talked before about working at Runner's World is my dream job, and it is. And it's allowed me to kind of, as as the fuel editor say, you can eat things in moderation. And I've talked about it and I bring in baked goods for the team. Um, you know, it, it is about moderation. It is, you know, you, you do run and you, you do stay healthy and it's important to reward yourself. And I don't go crazy anymore. You know, I know I want my ice cream and when I'm feeling full, I stop. And so I, I do struggle every day with these thoughts, but I, I want as my job now to kind of educate people that you can eat healthy you can have treats, you can have junk food, and you're going to be okay. And, and I hope that, you know, our listeners and our readers are getting that because I think it's so important. Um, and, and one thing I will say, is, it sort of answers your question maybe, is, you know, I've had coworkers not at Runner's World who just don't understand and will say, well, you can eat that, you ran. And that's one of my biggest pet peeves is, well, yeah, I do run, and, and I, I could eat this, but I could also eat it if I take a rest day. And I think it's best if we don't comment on what we're eating or not eating. Um, and, you know, I used to not be able to take rest days. I would feel sick to my stomach while I didn't run. And now I take a rest day and it's great. And I will have a donut and the thoughts are there, but I have not acted on them. And, you know, I have a supportive husband and family and coworkers. So thanks. But long winded answer, um, it, my job has helped me kind of come to terms with the science and, and what's practical and kind of how fuel really is for running. And, and food is a treat, and we're supposed to enjoy it, and we should. <laughs> Rachel Shulist, uh, one of the things that was so amazing about your story is just how many people responded to it and the outpouring of support you got. And um, could you talk a little bit about that and why you think it resonated with so many people? Yeah, I was so actually surprised with how many people commented on it and um, shared their story with me and it just I mean at the same time it touched my heart and also also broke my heart because reading how many people had been you know had gone through the same struggle or a similar one and are still struggling and just seeing how many people this affects I was just like oh my gosh you know this is 
this isn't a little thing. And just if I could be, you know, a positive light to someone or, you know, a positive example, then sharing this vulnerable part of my life is all worth it. And I, I, I don't, I don't know where it comes from, but part of me wonders, I mean, you can see a lot of times, like even in NCAA, we go through, there's a lot of women have gone through this cycle where, you know, they, they do really well and they start, I feel like it's like, you want to be the best you can be. I mean, runners were determined competitive people, you know, we want to do everything, but then all of a sudden we start to restrict food and then train harder. And then we get injured and I just, it's, we can see it happen. Um, like a, a lot of times. And so I, I think sometimes we see these images of these fast runners and we're like, Oh, okay. So they're skinny. So they're fast. And that's not it. You know, there's, we train hard to, to get to our best performance. And, um, and some people are just built slimmer than others, you know? Um, but I think those images and like Instagram and all that stuff today, it's so easy to see and just compare, you know, and that's so dangerous because really at the end of the day, I think we need to just be confident in who we are and what we have and just know that I made this way for a reason. I'm going to do all I like, I'm going to, I'm going to train hard, but healthy to be my best and do what's good in the long term because you know, what what you do to your body, like it's going to respond in some way. So if you feel it and you take care of it and you give it rest when it needs, it's going to be a lot better for you, you know, in the outcome. And it's, it's a lot more enjoyable too, because it's, even when I was 2014, I wasn't happy and I wasn't confident. Like, oh, I look great. I was, I was so insecure and, and anxious. And um, just being at a piece of yourself is invaluable. You can't place a value on that, you know. And, and Rachel, um, what support have you gotten from your coaches and, and how are you doing now? My coaches mean the world to me. Um, and they're the reason I think I came out of it because when I was small, you know, they, they would come and say, hey, like, are you, are you feeling enough, you know? Um, and then when I got my fracture, my head coach is like, you know, you need to figure out this food thing because otherwise it'll happen again. And I, I want to do this as long as I can running. So I was like, okay, I need, I need to own this um, and make some changes. And then coming back when I would be discouraged, you know, looking at pictures from when I was a lot smaller, I was like, I can't, was I only this good because I was that small? And that is a very scary thing because, you know, when you're at a competitive point and successful, you don't want to like just let that go. And my coach was like, no, you were there because you trained hard and my assistant coach, Sunny Couch, is like, you weren't happy there in 2014. You weren't happy. You're so much happier now. And even if you weren't as fast, that's got to mean more. And so just having them remind me, hey, you can be just as good, and it doesn't have anything to do with being that small, that means the world to me because I don't think necessarily every runner is as lucky to have coaches with that philosophy. So um, I'm very blessed that – I had them. And then for how I'm doing now, I mean, I, I, I still struggle a little bit, but for me, it helps to think long-term like, okay, I did a run today. So I worked out my body. So I'm going to put good stuff back into it so that I can be stronger tomorrow, you know, versus if I restrict, well, that's not going to get me anywhere because then I'm just going to end up injured and I want to respect my body and it's done a lot of great things for me. So I want to just enable it to keep doing what I love to do. For me, my turning point was, and I forget if it was my boyfriend, now husband at the time, or a relative, said to me, you know, you might not have kids later. And for me, that was like a point that was like, I'm 19 years old, I'm not thinking about this, but oh, wow. And I think that 
really helped me say, okay, I need to think more about myself and how I feel when I look in the mirror. So for me, that was my big long term. And, you know, so if anyone's listening, it's like, you do need to think beyond this meal or this purge or this restriction. Well, we didn't really talk about this, which is um, uh, the shame, you know, and we're secretive about this because we have shame about it. And can you talk about that, Hannah? Yeah. um, And kind of to build off what Heather said and what Rachel said, um, Rachel expressed this kind of feeling of isolation. And I found having an eating disorder is a very, very lonely place to be. Um, I talked about how it impacted my social life. Um, And for me, the turning point was more realizing like how it was affecting the people that I love the most, the people that cared about me the most. Um, I have a little sister and I know that she looked up to me so much. And I didn't want her to see what I was doing as good or as something that she should be doing because that was the scariest thing for me, for her to start going down the same road because it is so hard and lonely that you just wouldn't want to wish it on anybody. And Heather, you know, you you spoke to, you got got up your courage to speak to a, a professional who then kind of dismissed you. So I think that, you know, that might... Um, play into feeling shameful about it yeah it took like I said it took like three years almost four years even to say something and I think you know with any sort of mental health mental illness there's this stigma and we don't talk about it and I I debated doing this show when I first you know talk to you guys about it because there is this stigma but I think it's important and you know what that's who I am and I'm proud of what I've overcome and, and and you can do it too Researcher Rachel, um, uh, can you tell us about resources that are out there for people who uh, may be dealing with this or may know someone who's dealing with this? Uh, absolutely. But I, I wanted to comment first that I think um, in addition to all of you being so brave for sharing, you've kind of highlighted some really important things that might be good to take away. Um Heather, you mentioned just having people around you, you know, being able to comment on the nature of how we talk about food and we relate it to exercise is um, interesting because where where I work at the National Eating Disorders Association, we have like such a specific policy about really not commenting on what people are eating that I've gotten so desensitized from the real world in a way. Like I, I forget that I live in this little bubble where like we if you have cake on someone's birthday and you eat it great and you don't want to eat it fine or, you know, there's just so when I do hear those comments, it's much more stark for me to think about you know, equating, you can eat this because you exercised. It's like, yeah, you can eat it because you're a person and you want to enjoy it. Um, and and Rachel, um, the commentary that you've had supportive people around you and coaches that can really support you and your health is um, another thing that people, I mean, not everyone has a coach in that way, but surrounding yourself with a community, you know, there's running communities all over the place that can just be phenomenally supportive to one another. Um, and, and finding those people that can really help support you, even if you're not in a clinical eating disordered place, just you're struggling with the relationship with food in your body, finding the people that are going to bring you up instead of the ones who might um, not be so healthy for you. And that can be an important point. And all three of you have had really different experiences of running and of your eating disorders, and that there's many different ways that people can recover or get support. So keeping in mind that 
for anyone listening that if your story isn't like these, um, there are lots of different ways that people do get better. Um, now, to the question of resources. Um, so for people who might be concerned about their own or someone else's behaviors and attitudes about eating and exercise, um, there's a lot of information on the National Eating Disorders Association website. We're uh, nationaleatingdisorders.org, and we have everything from basics of eating disorders to how to talk to a friend who's struggling, lots of information all over the place. Um, we also have a helpline. We have trained volunteers who are available to answer questions about seeking treatment for yourself or someone else, um, finding support groups, assessing your options, and finding information generally about eating disorders. And you can reach them at 800-931-2237. It's Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern and Fridays from 9 to 5 Eastern. Okay, thank you very much, Rachel, for giving us that information and for joining us today. And I also want to thank you, Rachel Shulist, on the phone and Hannah and Heather for sharing your stories so bravely. We appreciate it. I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of listeners out there who relate and are, and are um, happy that you shared it for us. So thank you so much. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. That was Runner's World Executive Editor Tish Hamilton with Social Media Editor Hannah McGoldrick, Food and Nutrition Editor Heather Mayer-Urban, Rachel Presskreischer from the National Eating Disorders Association, and Rachel Shulist, an NCAA All-American runner at Michigan State University. You can find the helpline and a link to the National Eating Disorders Association at runnersworld.com audio. That's it for this week's show. Many thanks to all who participated in our survey and helped us learn more about our running community. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. And this week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.